Hey, today I'm speaking with Sheila Gregory about sex. And I have to be honest, talking about sex is such a hard topic because it's personal. It's very vulnerable. Most of our parents didn't talk to us about it, and many of our kids are learning about it from porn sites. And our culture is over-sexualized. And, well, quite frankly, I don't think our faith communities, (laughs) they just seem lost in all of it. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome back. Welcome back. So many of us have received messages from our conservative faith community about sexuality. And if we get right to it, we'd have to say they were just really bad. They were really bad messages. Not all that helpful. We need some work done in this area. And Sheila is doing just that. She and her team did did extensive surveys and focus groups, and they dug into 15 of the most popular Christian resources on sex and marriage. And then they put their findings in a book called The Great Sex Rescue. And if you've been on social media at all, surely you have heard it mentioned because it's all over the place. And it's a book that helps us women, conservative faith women, actually any woman I think, discover what beliefs we're holding on to about our sex lives that are holding us in hostage, quite frankly. It's a book that provides us with a roadmap to experiencing what Sheila calls amazing, mind-blowing, great sex. It's not her first book, by the way. She is an award-winning author of nine books, and she's a wildly successful blogger on marriage, and she's the face behind to love and honor and vacuum.com. And today, we're going to hear from her about what she has to say about evangelicalism and sex. Thank you, um, Sheila, for coming on to my podcast. I see that you've been doing a ton of podcasts out there. Everybody's listening to your messaging, and it's helping so many women. I've had so many women personally tap me and say, Jackie, you have got to read her book and get her on a podcast. So thank you, thank you for fitting us in. I appreciate it. Well, I'm just so glad to be here, and I, I love being on these things because, hey, I'm talking to real people. That's awesome. That's right, and real women and men are listening. So I did wonder, you know, there's a lot of stuff on sexuality out there in the conservative evangelical world. Why do you think your book is hitting home? Like, it's really hitting a chord for women in particular. What, what do you think that is? We're saying something new. We're saying that, a lot of what you have been taught about sex and marriage in the Christian world is actually making your marriage and sex worse. And we're validating what so many women have felt for so long, but they could never put words to it. I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that 
we're the only ones who actually ask women. <laughs> so many books have made these proclamations about what men are like and what women are like, and they haven't actually asked. And mm. we did the survey that's ever been done of Christian women, 20,000 women, and we have so much data. And so we're speaking from a point of view of um, science and like this is what's actually out there as opposed to just this is how we think you should be. Mm. That's great. Yeah. And that's what I'm hearing from women is, oh my God, she's, they're putting words to my experience. And I didn't know they, they have a belief system that's actually causing problems and they, it's, it's counterintuitive to what's actually happening in their bedroom and in their marriage. Right. And you're putting words to that and they're going, yes, yes. Well, of course they are. They're, you're, you're interviewing women and they're telling you what's happening. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, I've been a pastor to women for almost 30 years now. And whenever you deal with women, part of uh, a woman's life is their sexuality, right? Their marriage, et cetera, et cetera. Not that all women are married, um, but we are speaking about married women at this point. And um, I got to be honest with you. Like, so I've done a ton of reading on the resources that are out there in the conservative faith community. And I'm, I'm less than impressed. Let me just say that. So let me... I, I really think we at the church, evangelical church, is, are still really struggling to come up with a sexual ethic, this idea or even definition of what it's all about. So I thought we'd just start off with a really simple question, which is, what do you think it's all about, sex? What do you think is the main reason God even instituted it into our being? Just a minor yeah, question. Yeah, I think, I think that is actually the key question. Like, what is sex to begin with? And how does this reflect to how God sees us or why God created us the way he did? Because, and here's why it, it matters. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about why it matters before I answer it, because that'll frame it better. We hear all the time, sex is vital to a marriage. You need to have sex. Don't deprive him. But how we define sex actually determines how we're going to act when we hear those things. So if I were to ask you, Jackie, if I were to say, did you have sex last night? Which I'm not going to ask, like, you don't need to answer that because that's creepy. But, like, if I were to ask you that, <laughs> chances are you're picturing something in your head that is, like, he put his penis into her vagina and moved around until he climaxed. Like, we're picturing um, mm -hmm. intercourse. That is not the biblical definition of sex. Okay, in the Bible, Genesis 4, verse 1, there's this really funny verse. Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived a son. And it's really easy to laugh at that and think, oh, look, God was embarrassed of using the real word. But the Hebrew root of the word to know there for Adam knew his wife is the same as in the Psalms when David says, search me and know me, oh God. It's this deep intimacy, this deep longing to be connected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So biblically, sex is a deep knowing. Um, we also know it's pleasurable for both from Song of Solomon. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, we get this beautiful picture of mutuality. So biblically, sex is this experience which is intimate, mutual, and pleasurable. And that's what sex is supposed to be. And I think God created it for us so that we could understand the longing that he has to be connected to us in this amazing, intimate way, which is also a little bit ecstatic and a little bit euphoric. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and that's what it's supposed to be about. When we reduce it merely to intercourse so that the husband gets his physical release, which is literally how books like Every Man's Battle and Love and Respect talk about sex, then we miss out on God's creation and God's intention for us. 
Yeah. And it actually yeah. creates all kinds of problems for women. It's all kinds of messaging and belief systems about her sexuality or the very lack of as if she's not even sexual. But we'll get into that. We'll get into that. But I, um, I was hoping to interview you in 2022. Um, I was holding off because I kind of wanted to move into the new year on this topic. But something came up on social media, and I know that you read it, as has so many of us, and it caused this upstir, this roar. Um, and I thought, okay, this is why we got to do the interview now, because this is the crap that's out there. And I'm going to read it to our audience. And I want you to know, for those of you listening, I'm not going to tell you who it is. And then I'm going to get a whole bunch of questions on my Facebook page. Who's, who's the author <laughs> of that? And I, the reason I don't, I, somebody said to me, why don't you um, tell people's names? I'm like, because I'm not actually going after the person. I'm going after the idea. I don't want to go after my brother. I don't want to go after my sister. I want to go after ideas that are unhealthy. So that's the reason I'm being evasive. But this man who um, is very famous author is just written a forthcoming book on sex. And here's what he says. And I want you to listen and then tell us, Sheila, uh, what's that messaging and how might we want to set it straight? So here's what he said. By creational design and divine revelation, God clearly wants a wife's body, specifically her breast, to enthrall her <laughs> husband. Yeah. Um, in fact, the root word and the original language is more specifically than breasts. Oh, hold on. Someone is calling me, and I don't know how because I told, turned my phone off. Um, okay, let me go back. To enthrall her husband. In fact, the root word in the original language is more specific than breasts, but I'm not going to type that out there. You'll have to go to the end notes for more on that. This gives wives an influence over their husbands that can reset any power balances that may occur because of other issues. Many young women have learned how one quick flash of their breasts can change the climate in the room for their husbands like nothing. So that was just all over social media. It's an excerpt in a book that's coming out. What is going yeah, on with that? Already. Yeah, it launched in October. It's out already. Oh, there we go. Um, Oh, okay. Funny, funny note about that passage. If you go to the footnote, the word that he is so embarrassed to write there that you need to go look at the original Hebrew. It's just the word for nipple. Like, it's just nipple. That's all. Like, it's not really, it's like, seriously, you're making a big deal out of it. Okay. It's called body parts. Um, yeah. And this passage is in the broader context of how um, God made, humans are the only ones where we have breasts always, not just when we're nursing, like apes. They just get enlarged breasts when they're nursing. And so this means that God made breasts to be sexual, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's a lot of problems with that passage. <laughs> the biggest one to me is that you're supposed to flash your breasts to reset a power imbalance. Mm -hmm. And that he would say that so flippantly. Yeah. Because if there's a power imbalance in your marriage, that's a problem that needs to be dealt with. Because power imbalances lead to abuse. Right. And the fact that he would say that the way that we get away from power imbalances is for a wife to flash her breath is so incredibly offensive, abusive, and every other bad adjective I can think of. It's not biblical. It's not right. It diminishes what sex is, which is supposed to be this deep intimacy. How can you have intimacy with someone when there's a power imbalance? Answer, you can't, because in order to have intimacy, both people need to matter. You can't have intimacy when one person matters more than the other. Yeah. And teaching women, hey, use your body. Your body is, a, a, is objectified and can, can you use it and misuse it 
to correct power. Like that's asking me to objectify my body, which again is a, exactly. an offense to the Imago Dei. And my body is part of the Imago Dei, you know? It's like, wow. Yeah, and he also, you know, throughout the rest of the book, he presents, he presents men as being visual and as being sexual and women need to adapt to that and catch up. And that is one of the most harmful beliefs that we looked at in The Great Sex Rescue is the idea that, you know, men are the ones who always want sex. Women don't want it, but we can use it to our advantage when we need to. And that's just, that's just not right. Right. That's teaching, that's teaching us to manipulate with the body. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. nothing about that that fits what Jesus is about. So I agree with you. You highlight some of the excerpts of these popular books. You've mentioned them. Every Man's Battle, Love and Respect, His Needs, Her Needs. And I can't even tell you how many people I know read those books. I mean, we had them all over our church when I was on staff at a mega church in Dallas. Everybody was doing book studies on them. We had breakout sessions for Every Man's Battle. I mean, it's a big, these were big popular books, probably still are, Um and you talk about some of the mis-messaging that these books have put out there, and, and particularly this idea that men need sex and women don't and lusting. And let me just read a couple to the audience. Um, these are some things that are on your, in your book on page 79. Women must cultivate the problem of visual lust, whereas men almost universally must cope with the problem just because they are men. Because men and women are wired so differently, women often don't realize how the opposite sex sees the world. Most women simply aren't aware of what men's visual nature means or how much it impacts literally every area of most men's lives and relationships. Another quote says, we find another reason for the prevalence of sexual sin amongst men. We, get, we got there naturally simply by being male. What is that saying about our brothers? Anyway, and finally, a man cannot want to look. A man can't not want to look. Yeah. yeah. What is all of yeah, that? I didn't, I didn't write any of those, by the way. I'm just quoting other people. Right, right. There were my excerpts words. you took from these yes. books. Yes, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Thanks for clarifying. Um, and the one, yeah, the one from Every Man's Battle I find especially difficult, uh, that men got there naturally simply by being male. And that's, that's his whole thesis or their whole thesis in every man's battle is that men were naturally made to sin. In fact, in every heart restored, which is a companion book to every man's battle, he literally says men don't naturally have that Christian view of sex. So God made, so, so male sexuality and the objectification of women are seen as one and the same thing. And that God naturally made men to objectify women. That is the way that most of these books portray male sexuality. And then the answer to it is for women to have more sex so that men don't lust. And that's actually what every man's battle says. Um, It tells men, once you quit lust and porn cold turkey, then your wife can be like a merciful vial of methadone for you. Wow. So they call women the methadone for their husband's sex addiction. And one of the things that we did in our survey was we measured, um, we started off by simply measuring women's marital and sexual satisfaction. So we asked them all about how they rate their marriage and sex. And then we presented them with a number of common evangelical teachings and asked if they had ever believed them or had ever been taught them. From there, we were able to look at how teachings impacted marriage and sex. So we were able to measure people who did believe all men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle. 
and women who didn't believe that all men struggle with lust, and then see how they scored on sexual satisfaction, on orgasm rates, on libido, on rates of sexual pain, on marital satisfaction. And we could see how these beliefs, these teachings, do disastrous things to women's sexual response, to women's marital satisfaction, and even to pain, women's rates of pain. And, and this just needs to be taken seriously, because seriously, like all those books you mentioned, they're everywhere, <laughs> and they spread all of these same messages. Yeah, yeah. So tell us a little more about lust, because I think that's an interesting, because you talk about the fact that there's a connection here, that women, if they believe this, it actually impacts them in very negative ways. I'd love to dig into that just a little bit more. And I, I think it's interesting. I, I think I've said this before, but I, um, I think we have an, a weird understanding about lust and observing beauty. Like, I don't know that we've actually talked about the difference between this. Like, so I was with a friend of mine, he's a guy, and we were going to another guy's house and he had never met this man that we were going to visit. And I said, oh, he is the most beautiful man I have ever seen in person. And I could tell I made him uncomfortable. Now, mind you, he's an older man. So I think, you know, older men tend to have this whole every man's battle, you know, all of those messaging going on maybe a bit more. But, and I looked at him, I go, what, what's the deal? He's like, I've just never heard anybody say that. And I was like, well, I mean, humans are art. You know, if God's creation is beauty and glory, well, so are humans. And I can notice someone's beauty and even acknowledge it, but not want to have sex with them. They're not the same. <laughs> you know, yeah. so you talk a lot about in your book about this idea of lust. Let's let's dig into that a little bit more. Is this idea that men can't control themselves? How how is this really impacting women? And what do you think we need to do to change that message? I think first we need to define lust differently, which is exactly what you're talking about. Noticing is not lusting. Jesus said. Whoever looks at a woman with lust in her heart has already committed adultery. So what we're talking about is a deliberate action, looking, combined with a deliberate mindset, with lust in your heart. He is not saying whoever sees a beautiful woman, whoever notices that she has a nice chest, you know, whoever gets a quick glance at her behind and thinks it has a nice shape, he's not saying any of those men have lusted. And I believe that when we raise teenage boys to think that noticing a woman's figure automatically means that you will lust, then we create hypervigilance, which can actually cause lust. Like as soon as I say to you, don't think of pink elephants, what's the first thing you do? Pink elephants. <laughs> exactly, right? And so we're telling all of these men, you know, if you, you know, you, you cannot notice, like the whole every man's battle idea that you bounce your eyes away from women so that you aren't tempted to lust. Jesus did not refuse to look at women. Jesus chose to truly see women. Mm. And when you bounce your eyes, you are still treating her like a sex object. Right. You are saying to her, I only see you in sexual terms, so much so that I can't look at you. And then what you do is, is, is he feels all proud of himself because he's bounced his eyes. But how many women have had the experience where men refuse to look at us or they will only talk to our husbands when we're with them? Oh, yeah. Because you can't interact with another woman. Like that erases us as a person. That ignores the Imago Dei in us. And that is not how Paul treated women or how Jesus treated women. It's so unbiblical. Um, and yet when we get this idea um, that all men lust, it makes women feel extremely 
extremely unsafe and it makes sex seem something very ugly because it's like, if all men are lusting, then nobody sees me as a person. Then I don't exist. And women who believe that have far lower libidos. Mm. I even wonder if that even creates more competition amongst women, right? Like if I walk around thinking my husband is always lusting, then every time I'm near a woman, I've got to wonder, is he wanting her? And that's going to produce in me a competitive nature with another woman. Like, I'm not even sure this is helpful for developing sister relationships. Oh, I think it's, I think it's very unhelpful. In fact, if you ask women, and I've done this on my blog, when did you feel most objectified in church? There are certainly all of us who had the gross, the gross experiences with men, and far too many of us have been sexually assaulted at church, and I am not trying to diminish that. Um, that is far too large a problem. And churches need to take this way more seriously. But anecdotally, what most women will tell you is that it is other women who have made them feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Like it, it was a female Sunday school teacher who said to my daughter when she was 11 and starting to develop, you're going to have to watch what you wear now and make sure not to wear V-necks so that the men don't stare at your chest. Right. Because men right. can't help themselves. Could, <laughs> right. And we couldn't, we couldn't get her to go to church for weeks because she was all afraid that all of these men that she loved, like, you know, all the men at church that she thought of were like uncles to her, were now going to be looking at her chest. And you know how you feel when you're 11 yes, and going through yes. puberty. That's all really highly. Yes. Like, yes. But it's, it's, it's often women who are the ones um, who have all the dress codes for the teenage girls <laughs> and who warn teenage girls of being stumbling blocks. And so it does hurt our relationships with our sisters. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, one of the things about the idea that we communicate that men can't help themselves is, I, I, first of all, I always think to myself, that's, that's just crazy because you are an image bearer, you know, which, which is a high, high statement. Um, you are made in God's image as a man. And, and Paul says that we can have the mind of Christ and we're called to be like Christ. They have the spirit of Christ living in them. Of course. I mean, I feel like we have said by these messages, we've almost allowed men to behave and, and sink down into an animalistic um, creature rather than saying, whoa, 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 let's talk about the Imago Dei. Let's talk about who you actually are. So I feel like we've lowered the bar so low. And that's the expectation for men. I must be lustful. There's something wrong with me if I'm not. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Absolutely. Yeah, because we equate male sexuality with lust yeah, and yeah. with an inability to see women as whole people. And I, and love, that's a huge- I, I love what you said about not being seen because I, you know, I was one of the first women in my church and kind of the higher leadership. So I was always, I've always been in a, a very male dominated leadership environment in Christian circles. And one time I was in New York and I was being asked to preach at this church and um, I was in a hotel and the senior pastor said, hey, would you like to go out to dinner before, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah. So I call my husband. I go, what do you want to bet he shows up with somebody else in the car? <laughs> there is no way this dude's going to pick me up at a hotel, take me to dinner, and bring me back to a hotel, right? You know what? Mm-hmm. He, he did. And I got mm-hmm. in the car, and I can't even explain how I felt because I've never experienced that. I've never been treated as a sister. I've always been treated as suspect, right? Like I'm, I'm a tempter or a problem for, I'm a problem for these men. And this man acted like I was just normal Joe. 
and we went to dinner and we talked about theology and we had a glass of wine. He dropped me off at home and lo and behold, we didn't have sex. You know, I mean, it was just, (laughs) but it was so liberating for me. I felt treated like a human being and I'd not experienced it. I was 50 some years old by the time I experienced that. Yeah. That's really sad. It's amazing. It is, it is sad and it, it destroys a lot of relationships and it destroys, it, it destroys how women see our own sexuality because our own sexuality is now laden with so much shame because we are seen as threats and often our very bodies are the things that are threatening. Mm-hmm. So as soon as we start to develop in puberty, we have to wear different clothes. We have to be careful not to be a stumbling block, et cetera, et cetera. And we start to feel like, there is something wrong with me because if women have to dress differently so as not to be stumbling blocks, it does imply that if something happens to us at some level, we asked for it. Right. Right. And so then we begin to feel like our bodies, our very bodies, are making us vulnerable to assault and to all kinds of gross things, mm-hmm. even just men's thoughts. When that's the relationship that you have with your body, how are you supposed to then embrace your body and enjoy your body once you're married? Yeah. Your body is seen as something which betrays you, and it's very difficult to change that attitude um, once we're married. Yeah, and there's all kinds yeah. of things about this, right, that happen. And I, I know you've heard the stories I have, too, of, you know, this idea of no, 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 get married, go, go, go. So there's so much shame wrapped around sex before marriage and as a woman being a threat and a tempstress and then she gets married and now she's supposed to you know like get a strip tease pole in her bedroom and you know all of a sudden right like and and no it doesn't just the the switch doesn't just flip and I I love what you say in your book um how you you say that we are told in the church and I'm quoting you that the key to great sex is waiting until the wedding night but in your survey, you found that women shared this wasn't necessarily the case. They did wait, and well, lo and behold, wedding night wasn't spectacular. Um, and so I think it would behoove us to stop promising that anyway, right? There's, there's no promise to that. Sex, good sex takes time and gets, takes knownness. Um, so it sets us up, I think, a little bit for disappointment. But you say this. Here's the uncomfortable truth. Your marital status is not what makes sex orgasmic or not, your arousal level does. So what do you mean by that? We have a sexual prosperity gospel in the church. And we, we have it because we're trying to bribe young people to wait for marriage for sex. And Ooh, so we tell so them, good. just wait. <laughs> you know, just wait because then sex is going to be amazing. And that is the key to great sex is to wait. Um, but I can tell you that we found that that's not the key. <laughs> And that a lot of women who waited actually had quite terrible sex because they had never, they they didn't understand how to get aroused. And a lot of women who didn't wait actually had quite good sex. And so the reason that we wait is not about making your sex life great. The reason that you wait is all kinds of other things, you know, wanting to follow God's plan, wanting to make sure that you're emotionally close rather than just physically close. And so you're making a good decision. Like there's all kinds of reasons to wait. But we need to make sure that we frame them properly rather than just saying sex, amazing sex is going to await you if you do everything right. Because it's not true. In fact, here's a stat that isn't in the book. So here's a preview, okay? Okay. (laughs) This one isn't even there. Um, This one's in our upcoming books, The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex and The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. And this one's kind of controversial. But 
we were one of the big things we were looking at was the rate of sexual pain because primary vaginismus um, which is a sexual dysfunction disorder that women can have just like erectile dysfunction is something men can have vaginismus is something women can have and it's when the muscles of the vaginal wall contract or they get really tight and it makes penetration very difficult if not impossible and we've known for like 50 years that conservative Christian women suffer from this at twice the rate of the general population. Wow. And so one of our research questions going in is why? Like, what is it about Christianity? The main reason um, is the obligation sex message. That one is huge. Uh, so is the idea that you have to have sex to stop your husband from watching porn. That one's also very big, but that heavily correlates with the obligation sex message. Um, but another big one is waiting for the wedding night. Because couples who have sex before the wedding, if you only ever have sex with the person you're married with and with controls for abuse, so that's not a factor. Right. Um, people right. who wait for the wedding night are 25% more likely to experience vaginismus than those who don't wait. Now, I'm not saying we should all go out and have sex before the wedding. Right. <laughs> what we're actually spelling out is we need to do our honeymoon so totally differently and we need to have different expectations. And... Instead of aiming for intercourse, which is what we often do, and women often freeze up, we feel obligated, we feel cornered, it's just a very strange thing. We, what we advise is work on feeling comfortable first, then figure out how to get her aroused, maybe even figure out how to bring her to orgasm some other way, and then and only then work on intercourse. <laughs> so do it in the right order. I love it. And I I agree with you. I tell people who are getting married, hey, you know, maybe you should not do your honeymoon right away. Like, maybe mm -hmm. just go home and do normal life. Normal sex, right? Normal. Like, because the thing about the honeymoon, if that's your first time you've ever had sex, oh my God, the expectation is, you know, out of this world. I don't know how you can hit it, you know? And and there's too much pressure on that one event, Um I wonder if we could just make it more natural and more rhythmic if it would be easier too. But that's an interesting, that's an interesting fact that more women struggle with that Christian women than non-Christian women. Wow. Yeah. And it, again, it's largely related to the obligation sex message that you don't have a choice. You need to have sex when he wants it. And you know, the, what happens to women when they believe the obligation sex message our chance of experiencing sexual pain increases to almost the same statistical effect as if we had been abused. Because abuse and the obligation sex message say the same thing. They say, he has the right to use you however he wants, mm -hmm. and you don't get a choice. And when we feel like we don't have a choice, our bodies react with trauma, and we literally freeze up. And yet that is the message that is given in so many Christian books. You know, ladies, you're not allowed to deprive your husband. And I don't believe, like I said, that's not what that verse means. No, it's not that what that verse means. You're not allowed to, to say <laughs> But that's how that verse is used, to say you are not allowed to ever say no to your husband. And when we take away women's autonomy and agency, then she doesn't have anything to share. Because sex needs to be about two people sharing who they are. If she doesn't have a choice, she can no longer really share because she doesn't matter. Right. right. And that's where things get really off the rails. And she starts to feel used and abused. Mm -hmm. Used and abused. Because she is 
being used. She is being used and abused. That's exactly right. <laughs> so yeah, even if even if it's not intentional, even if it's not malicious, right? Um, when we grow up with these messages and we think that she doesn't matter, uh, it can it can really re- impact us. And interestingly, it can impact us even if our husbands don't feel that way. We talked to so many women who had awful sex lives believing the obligation sex message. But then when they actually sat down and talked to their husbands, their husbands were like, I never want you to do something you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. So, so it isn't, and this is, this is the whole point of our book. We're not saying men are bad. We're saying, although some men certainly are, absolutely. But we're saying that the teachings that the, that the evangelical church is steeped in actually do harm to women. And Even men. if our husbands Yes, and men. And men, right? Because because if we think about that, and I was going to ask you that, because I, you know, I'm I'm thinking about most of the people that I have ministered with and to, I would say that many of those men would be so disappointed to know that their wife felt that way because they wouldn't want that for their wife. But they had, they too have been socialized in these messages, right? And, and we've been taught to hide them from, like to hide what we're really feeling from them. Oh, yeah, because we're told that what he wants is for you to feel good about about sex, and he wants you to enjoy it, so you're not allowed to tell him that you don't enjoy it. But Jackie, okay, this is what I don't get, all right? Most guys don't want duty sex. So why are all of these Christian authors talking about it like your wife isn't going to give you sex unless you make her? Like, unless we guilt her into it. Like, what is that saying about themselves? And don't they even realize that? Like, I wonder that sometimes. Like, don't even get me started. The more I hear <laughs> pastors talk about these things in extreme ways, I think, oh, dude, I'm pretty sure what's going on behind your doors. <laughs> the stronger they get, weird. the more nervous I get, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. What's going on in your corner that you're talking this way? I agree. Wow. Let's talk about um, libidos. This is this I've heard often um, that people have different libidos, right? There, there is a misnomer that men have them and women don't. Um, yes. And, and so this creates, and again, another teaching. Um, this creates all kinds of difficulties in 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 the marriage because we, you know, we we. I've heard so many people. My wife doesn't want to have sex, and I've heard a lot of women who's like, my husband's don't have a high libido. And so the question they immediately go to is, is he having an affair? Is, is Mm -hmm. he, is he gay? Right? Like those are the, because, because a man's not allowed to have a low libido, right? So there must be a reason because men have high libido. So you talk a little bit about the different libidos, different seasons that bring shifts. Tell us a little more about that. All right. My great grandfather was five foot six. My great-grandmother was five foot 11, and there were not reporters and scientists knocking on their door saying, how is this even possible? <laughs> because <laughs> while we all know that men are taller than women, we also all instinctively understand that some women are taller than some men. And libido works in a very similar way. Men on the whole have higher felt libidos than women. But that does not mean that some women do not have higher libidos than some men. But the problem is our books are written as if men want sex and women don't. Love and Respect literally says if your husband is typical, he has a need that you don't have. Um, his needs her needs put sex in the, need, in the column for men. That is one of his needs. It's not one of her needs. Uh, and I could go on and on. This is the way that it's portrayed. 
And don't but you want to ask, we, well, what did we get a clitoris for then? I mean, there's no reason for it. Other than, it's like, really? Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> like, we have multiple orgasms. Like, seriously. Anyway, so um, <laughs> what we found is that like 58% of men have the higher libido, but so do 19% of women. And in 23%, it's shared. So the idea that it's always the guy with the higher libido is just false. But I have talked to so many women who say, my husband is happy with sex once a week and I feel so undesirable. And we had to go to counseling to work this out. And it's like, he just has a normal libido. He's just on the lower end, right. you know, right. <laughs> nothing necessarily wrong. Now, sometimes there's porn use involved. That's a huge problem. It's a very big issue with low libido men. So you always need to check that out. But there are simply also natural variations. And we should not be demonizing men who have lower libidos, but we should also not be demonizing women who have higher felt libidos. Um, and, and so we do need to see this in a more nuanced way. And what would you say to a couple if they were struggling with the differences? Like, how, how can we help um, them? I think always getting back to what sex really means. You know, that it is something intimate, mutual, and pleasurable for both. And let's ask first, is it pleasurable for both? Because one of the reasons women have no libido is often because there's nothing for them to look forward to. Mm. Like we have a seven-point orgasm gap, by which I mean that 95% of men almost always or always reach orgasm during a given encounter compared to just uh, 48% of women. So that's a 47-point orgasm gap. So it might not be that she has a low libido. It might just be that sex does nothing for her because they haven't figured out how to make her feel good. And so, you know, before we even address libido issues, we need to address all the other issues because libido is actually a symptom of what is going on in the marriage. It isn't a thing in and of itself usually. Um, and in our study, we found that when women frequently orgasm, when they feel emotionally connected to their spouse during sex, when there's high marital satisfaction, when there's no porn use, and when there's no sexual dysfunction, frequency pretty much works itself out. It doesn't tend to be an issue. And so if it is a big issue in the marriage, then let's ask, like, which of these five things do we need to work on? Or do we need to work on more than one? Because often, <laughs> even if someone has a lower felt libido, if they feel really close to their spouse, if they have, you know, if they're not stressed, if there's great marital satisfaction, if sex feels good, all, usually people are more than willing to have it more often than they have a felt need for it because they know it's going to feel good anyway. Right. right, right and so right. if they aren't, and, and, and as long as you know you're close to your spouse and as long as you know that you're going to feel good when you have sex, then even if you have a higher felt need than your spouse, you're often willing to give them space because you know, hey, we're, it's going to work out, you know? So if there isn't that give and take, we need to ask what's going on and how can we work on that? That's excellent. That's excellent. You, you talk a little bit in your book about a sexless marriage. Um, share with us what you discovered about that and what's a way to rescue a sexless marriage? Because that can be extremely yeah. painful. It really can be. And this is the one area where I really changed my teaching since doing the study, because I really used to lecture women on prioritizing sex more and having more sex. But like I said, we just found that there are very, very few sexless marriages that don't have other issues. Mm. And so we need to start attacking those other issues. 
But one of the big things we talk about in the book, too, is that if you look at it from the woman's point of view, a lot of women are in sexless marriages, what we call sexless marriages in disguise. They're still technically having intercourse, but for those women, they're essentially sexless because they don't feel emotionally close to their husbands during sex. They feel used, and they're not reaching orgasm. And think about that. If she is feeling used and she's feeling no pleasure, that's basically a sexless marriage. And yet, we don't consider that a sexless marriage. Because if you go into a marriage counseling office, the first thing they'll say to you is, how often are you having sex? That's right. And if it's it's two times a week, well, then we get to cross that, that box off and we're fine. But if she's feeling used, and if she's feeling no pleasure, then how is that remotely okay? And, and so we just need to get back to our definition of sex. It isn't just intercourse. It's something which is mutual, pleasurable, and intimate. And for most women, there are other routes to orgasm that are more reliable than just intercourse. And so we need to think of sex as more than just that. And we need to consider what both people need. So... Um... I love what you're saying there. I, you know, I'd never really thought about when you wrote that in the book, I'd never really considered that a sexless marriage could also be people who are having sex. And I never put that together, but that's a really interesting way to think about it. If she's not actually experiencing any pleasure and engage, then it's, then it's really for not for her. Does, does that, did you have any men, women say that men wanted to be, have a sexless, sexless marriage? Um, yeah, we did. Uh, a lot of that is due to um, erectile dysfunction or due to pornography. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of it in neurotypical, or sorry, um, not not neurotypical. What's the word when it's not typical? Atypical. <laughs> Atypical. Yeah. Anyway, I forget what the the words keep changing, and I'm sorry. I'm just insulted all of that community, and I didn't mean to. <laughs> but when not when you're not neurotypical. Um, uh, there's a lot of that in those kinds of marriages as well, and that can be a big problem. Um, and then there are a lot of men, uh, not a lot, like when I say a lot, I mean, there's, there's, there, there, they were in our survey, but we're not talking 20%. We're talking, you know, much lower than that. Um, where there might be sexual identity issues, where there might be, um, some major issues of maybe asexuality or unprocessed trauma. Um, that needs to be dealt with, but in most of the time, you're looking at porn use or sexual dysfunction issues. That you that raises one more thing, and I want to just tap that a little bit. And this is a whole book in itself, and a whole conversation, multiple conversations. But how much did you notice in your surveys um, that sexual abuse played into problems in the in the sex life of a married couple? How often did that pop up? It certainly did. We asked about prior abuse, and that certainly was a factor um, for all kinds of these issues. I can also tell you that a lot of people who have been abused do go on to have great sex lives. And so if you're someone who has been abused, please don't feel like you're doomed for life because you're not. (laughs) And there are so many great evidence-based therapies now. Um, if you see a licensed counselor who's trained in trauma therapies, there's so much that can be done. And we saw so many women who had been healed. So it does impact women to a large extent and men as well. Um, but it isn't a life sentence and it doesn't impact women necessarily a whole lot more than some of these other beliefs, yeah. Yeah. which I think is really interesting. Like mm-hmm. in many ways, these beliefs act 
in very similar ways to prior abuse. Yeah, that does not surprise me because it's spiritual abuse that impacts our practices and sexuality is part of our practices. I mean, that's the reality. (laughs) This is why I'm constantly trying to reshape how we think about God, Jesus, the scriptures, and ourselves, because this impacts how we live. It impacts our practice, you know, as you can tell. And I have found the same thing. I wanted to say that for most of the women that I have pastored that have had sexual abuse, I have seen many, many women go on to have healthy sex lives. So it is not a life sentence, which yay for that, right? You talk in your book about marital rape, and this is something that's not talked about very often. Um, I'm not even sure that most people even know that it exists. And if they did, they might go, oh, that's not really rape. So why did you put that in there? Like, what, why did you tap that? And how would you advise a woman who awakens? Because if they're reading your book, some women are going to go, oh, my gosh, that's me. She's describing me. What do you, how, you know, what do you do when they awaken to the fact that they've indeed been raped by their spouse? Yeah, and it is devastating. And when we looked at the 13 best-selling books that we, um, uh, we were researching for our project, the one word that was missing from all of them was the word consent. It's just not there. We don't talk about this in the evangelical world. And that's tragic and it needs to change because mm-hmm. our rates of marital rape are far too high. Um, for various reasons, we couldn't ask about it in the survey of 20,000. It's complicated. It has to do with university ethics guidelines and whether we, we're going to be able to get peer reviewed. Um, we have asked about it in, in subsequent studies because they were under different, and it's, it's hard to explain. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we're looking at marital rapes, rape uh, frequencies in the tune of about 15 to 20% in evangelical marriages. Tell our audience what you consider a marital rape, because again, I'm not sure a lot of our listeners even know what that is. Yeah, it it does not mean that you're necessarily held down, kicking and screaming. It is not necessarily a physical rape, the way we would normally think of rape. Coercion is any time that you feel like you don't have a choice. So, for instance, one woman told us that she has to have sex before small group every week, uh, the night before they go to the beach, the night before Christmas, anything where there's going to be a big family event, because if she doesn't, he punishes her. He gets grumpy. He um, will embarrass her in public and all of this stuff. That is coercion. If you have to have sex so that he treats you better, so that he doesn't yell at the children, um, if you have to have sex so that he will give you access to money, that is rape, even if he's not holding you down. Um, if he makes you do sexual acts that you don't want to, if he wakes you up in the middle of the night for, for sex when you have said no, like any of those things are still marital rape. And that's a really hard thing to accept. And that can be devastating to realize that this may be the dynamics in your marriage. And if that is you... If you're in an unsafe situation right now, please call a domestic abuse hotline. If you aren't sure and you just need to process, um, those hotlines can still help. But so can seeing a licensed counselor uh, if you don't feel like you're in imminent danger. But not necessarily with your husband, okay? Couple um, right. something isn't right when there is abusive dynamics going on. Um, but talking things out with a licensed counselor can help you figure out your next moves as well. 
Yeah, thank you for. I am so I so appreciate that you brought it up in the book because I actually travel internationally extensively with my husband. He works in Africa, and um, I encounter this often um, in environments where high there's high high patriarchy, and women have no consent even to take any kind of birth control. They cannot say no to their husbands ever, and so. It, there is this kind of behavior happening to women, and, and again, it's abuse, and um, and it's expected, and I, and I so I'm very familiar with it in other cultures. I think we rarely talk about it in the American culture, and definitely not at all in the evangelical community. And so I hope if any woman heard that, um, that you would do exactly what Sheila recommended, and also feel free to um, message me privately or email me. Um, I'm not a licensed therapist, but I can send you to the right people. So if you're listening and you need just somebody personally to talk to, I'm here. So, um, okay, I'm going to close up with this last question. It's kind of like, hey, could you give me the final, you know, to the rest of your book? But um, there, I think there are lots of reasons that healthy couples engage in sex. And I've read this in some other books, and it made some sense to me, mostly because um, I found it probably in my own marriage, which is very anecdotal. So it's really not, you know, proven. But I think, you know, sometimes when you're bored, having sex is, is a great thing to bring a couple together. It takes off stress. I know for me, when I'm putting on a really big event, um, if I have sex before, I, it's like, it, it's just like going for a five mile run. I can finally, you know, whoo, okay. All right, here we go. Um, it, it, I think is also a way for a couple to be close when there's trauma. And you mentioned that in your book, a couple, I think it was that lost a child and how they had a healthy sex life. And that really helped them feel comfortable and known in the middle of, of this loss. Um, in your book, you mention um, how we can move from having intercourse, this idea of just having sex, right? Like this mechanical, if you will, to making love, to it being something way more about mutuality, pleasure, and knownness in all kinds of circumstances. What do you mean by that, moving from having intercourse to making love? And how do we start on that pathway? Because that's really what everybody wants to know. Yeah. The difference between intercourse and truly making love is that knowing piece, that feeling mm-hmm. like you are intimately connected and being known. And the, the best route towards that is vulnerability, emotional vulnerability, really being able to open up, share your, your heart, your feelings, your fears, your insecurities, that's why, by the way, makeup sex is a real thing. You know, after a fight, you actually want to have sex. It's because you have just shared, like, the most intimate feelings, and you've become totally vulnerable, and that often fuels desire. And that's the missing piece for so many people, is they think that the sex part can bring the intimacy, and it can't. Mm. You need, if you want, if you want real intimacy, you need to be able to be emotionally vulnerable and talk to each other first and share your heart. That can be difficult, especially for a lot of guys who have been taught to channel all of their negative emotions into their need for sex. So if he's feeling rejected, insecure, angry, bored, whatever, he won't know how to process that because we often don't teach boys how to. And so they they channel it into their sexual needs. Well, I need to connect sexually now and get that dopamine rush. But if we're honestly going to have really deep relationships, we need to be able to be vulnerable with each other, which means we need to be able to trust each other. You cannot force vulnerability. It doesn't work. 
So you need to have that underlying relationship of real trust. And when couples can develop that, marriage can be amazing. (laughs) And that's the picture that we're trying to paint. Sex should not just be a duty. It shouldn't just be something which is merely about physical release, as Emerson Eggert says in Love and Respect. It should be something which is this deep knowing, this deep passion, which only comes when two people truly desire to be joined in every way. And when we can get that picture in the evangelical church, then I think we'll stop settling for the really false, shallow substance. Yeah, yeah. And that may be very well why I think older sex in marriage is even better than when you're younger. Because when you first, I think when people first get married, it's so um, scary in the sense of, forget even just the physical act of sex, but like the vulnerability part, you know, can, can I tell him that? And he won't, you know, feel, you know, belittled or, or insecure. Can I, can I tell her that? I mean, you know, what we need from each other and how to experience each other and figure out each other's arousals and all those. It's so scary. You know, it's a very vulnerable space. And if you move along in a marriage and it's moved and based on trustworthy knownness along the way, that becomes like 30 years in, it's rich. It's rich. My 30th anniversary is on Tuesday. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't you agree? And I think it has to do with what you're talking about, the trust and the knownness. I mean, my, our sex life with my marriage just gets better and better and better. We're on 30, we're heading to 34 next month and it just gets better and better. And part of it is because we have been in this together, building a history, trusting each other, being able to be vulnerable, even sharing some of our sexual perversions with one another and looking at each other and going, okay, all right, let's, let's do, let's, let's deal with that. Let's deal with what you're, you're thinking and, 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 oh, you're not going to judge me. No, I'm not going to judge you. Let's deal with it. You know, not being afraid of the darkness that also exists in us, putting it out there with each other, which has been very brave and scary, you know? Yep. Yep. That's what it looks like. And it's hard to get there, but when you do, everything is so much richer. Yeah. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but it is worth it. Like you said, you can have amazing sex. Okay, I want to just thank you for the research you're doing because, I, as I said earlier, I think your work is really helping a lot of women have a lot of aha moments. I hope men also, because I think a lot of men want to have great sex with their wives also. And so I hope that this is, you know, helping them see some things too. And I just really appreciate you doing some work and being really honest and tearing apart, if you will, not our brothers that are writing these books, but the concepts that actually have had um, negative, if not downright harmful impact on us in our marriages. So how can um, uh, women and men out there find your book? Where is it? Yes. You know, that book. Yes, we want so them to have that book. <laughs> yes, go to Amazon or anywhere you buy books and look for The Great Sex Rescue. And please, when you go to Amazon, read the reviews. Like, just read the reviews. There's over a thousand of them. They're so freeing. So go te- take a look at that. You can find me. My podcast is called The Bear Marriage Podcast. Um, and my blog is at tolovehonorandvacuum.com. So there's links to all my courses and my books and everything there. Um, so I hope you find me. And you can you can find my fun Instagram account, too, under Sheila Gregor. But it's all linked at the blog. So go look for me and check out Great Sex Rescue. All right. Thank you very much, Sheila. Thank you guys for listening. May you have great sex. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. 
You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day. Thank you.